Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Zanelle Injapa, also known as the Unlearning Lady. As a global speaker, Zanelle has captivated audiences with her sensational keynotes and thought-provoking unlearning facilitations. Drawing upon a background in educational psychology, she challenges long-standing company dogmas while developing her audiences with her unique, humorous stories and insightful views around the future of work and creating cultures of continuous self-disruption. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts so that we can keep bringing you this great content. Zanelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on what you're working on today. Cool. So my background is in primary school teaching. I used to be a primary school teacher for about three or so years. I taught what we call fifth graders uh, around the ages of 10 or so. And it was absolutely fantastic time. I've always known I wanted to teach. I used to walk up and down our home corridor with a cup of tea and pretend I was a teacher and <laughs> close my little brothers in our spare room uh, against their will. But hey, who's counting, right? It's not one of those things. But that's my background. My background is in teaching. And the way that I made a transition to working with organizations today, because I do a lot of work with organizations around change and unlearning more specifically. But the way that that transition happened is that I was realizing that what a lot of organizations are now calling future skills are actually things that children have quite well. They have down pat, as we can say. And so the big question that came into my mind then was that there must be something going on in the middle between the time when we are children and we enter into the schooling system and when we're in organizations. So what really was the sort of disconnect that was happening there? That's what we needed to then unlearn. So the big conversation that I now have with organizations is how do we unlearn? How do we self-disrupt and how do we change in a way that will allow us to be nice and future fit? So when you, when you talk about unlearning, I have this mental image of men in black and people standing there and they flash this light and all of a sudden they've unlearned everything. Um, Presumably you're not talking about something quite so sweeping. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you use a device like that? And are you dressed in black most of the time? Good question. Um, That's a very good question. And I often get asked that a lot, uh, whether unlearning is about forgetting. And fortunately, it's actually not. It's not forgetting at all. Literally what it is, it's introducing a new default or a new um, dominant way of thinking, of doing, of perceiving. And that really is what it is. If we think about how the brain learns, it's through introducing these defaults and almost reconfiguring our perceptions around things. So that's all unlearning is. It's how do we sort of recalibrate how we think and see things so that we have a new default. It doesn't mean everything that we used to do is now gone out the window. So it isn't that flashy device <laughs> um, that gets you to forget everything, but it's just working with you to uh, introduce those new defaults. So what's an example of introducing a new default? 
Cool. That's a very good question. So let's say, for example, and I, I work both with organizations and in a coaching capacity, but with organizations, I do introduce a kind of coaching approach. So we'd be talking about maybe, let's say, for example, if we're thinking about innovation and you've asked, uh, let's get Zanelli in to help us have a conversation around how we can rethink innovation and how we innovate. And what I find with a lot of organizations is that their default is that innovation is an out-of-the-box type of thinking. But my perception and what I like to sort of challenge them to do is to think about innovation more as a um, thinking inside the box. How do you use what you have, what's available to you, the resources you have and the products as they are and work internally? It's sort of this um, limited resource kind of approach to innovation. So how do we think inside the box, introducing that default and starting from what we have, recalibrating the way that our product is already and then working from there and seeing how we can innovate with the little that we have. It's this frugalism type of innovation approach. So whatever it is that they have, it's just shifting that perspective to say, what are we missing in that context and what's not so available to us at that moment? So it's not primarily a matter of learning new information. It's mostly just shifting the way that you're seeing the problem that you're trying to confront. Exactly. Yeah. And, and a, a really good thought around this is, is taking on a kind of systems thinking approach. Systems thinking is a very heavy type of perspective. So I like to almost not use that term, but it is that a lot of the time, because I find that we, when a lot of organizations take a very almost broader look around innovation and change, then they become a lot more aware around the different parts of the ecosystem that are at play. I love to use the example of the Australian jewel beetle and that lovely case study about the jewel beetles. <laughs> yeah, I can see uh, you're nodding. That that lovely example around um, the jewel beetles relationship with the beer bottle. Mm -hmm. And I always use that as a little <laughs> joke. But actually what that's saying is that um, what beer manufacturers were so unaware of in Australia was that when um, the purchasers were flinging these beer bottles out onto the Australian highway, these male jaw beetles were attempting to actually mate, not because they loved beer, but because they were thinking that these were female Australian jaw beetles. And what they weren't aware of regarding their design is how it was impacting the rest of the ecosystem in which they existed. And I think that that's really what unlearning is about, is how do we shift our perspectives to be aware of some of the other cogs that at first we might not even have seen or we may have been intentionally ignoring sometimes. So that's a that brings up a great question. I mean, do, is that how we get new beer? Is uh, <laughs> this mating process with the beer bottles? <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great example of 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 the um, uh, the the unlearning, but also how how to um, expand the thinking at the same time. And uh, yeah, so so what are what are some of the other examples that you use uh, in explaining the unlearning process? Cool. So I'll give you another one. You might be familiar with Black and Decker. Um, popularly a lot, a lot more popular in the UK, but actually quite does quite well in the US. So they're a power tool brand. And the great thing that Black & Decker did was that after being a well-known household brand for a number of years um, with their clients, uh, these are power tool users, is that they did a bit of research further into their product. And they found out that actually a Black & Decker drill in its span of about 10 or so years was only turning for a few minutes, possibly under 10 minutes for its entire, in its entire almost life, <laughs> life, if you can call it the life of a drill. 
And this was actually quite quite interesting information because if you look at the types of innovation that they were putting to place, they were trying to make it easier to handle. Um, they were trying to think about how can we make it a little bit more energy efficient? How can we make the design more sleek and attractive and appealing to the eye? So they were going about their innovation and creativity in a way that wasn't necessarily um, from the perspective that they could potentially do it or, or sh shifting their thinking, if we can think about it like that. So what they then started to do, and as a result of this research, finding out how the drill was actually being used, they started to ask themselves the question then, what are people actually buying from us? Because if that drill is only turning for less than 10 minutes, then the big question is exactly what is it that our clients want or our customers want? And truth is, people actually just want it a whole. And when I tell that to clients, I usually do get a bit of laughter, but that's the point. People just want a hole in the wall, a hole in the fence, <laughs> a hole somewhere, a hole. That's right. the point. And right. so when they started to recalibrate this and they thought, wait a minute, we could use this insight or this new piece of information to turn our innovation in the direction of giving our people what we want. So the, there was this shift in question almost, not what do our clients buy from us, but what do our clients do with what they buy from us? And then that's when the innovation and, and some of the big changes started to happen. Ideas around what we call a, a kind of Uber for drills, where you're thinking about how about we lease? How about we change our entire business model? Because now the way we see things has completely changed. And I mean, if you look at the, the direction that the world is moving, I think this is a kind of thing that we all need that consistently prodding at ourselves and poking at how we are all seeing things and doing them. Yeah, so much of our society is built based on uh, just-in-case thinking. I need, I need these things in my house just in case I might need them sometime later in my life. And and you're, you're absolutely right. Most of these things get used just momentarily here and there, and, um, and they're sitting around most of the time. And in, in the United States, we have this massive storage industry that has cropped up because of this just-in-case thinking. I mean, it's, we, we have to own all this stuff, and then when we're done with it, we don't just throw it away. We have to age it for a while, and that has created this massive storage industry. So, uh, yeah, all, all of our shortcomings on one end are creating new industries on the other end. Yeah, mm. it reminds me so much of this quote that today's problems are as a result of yesterday's solutions. And that's why I just always say, you know, <laughs> that that's why I love movements like ESG, because it's really probing us to start to rethink how innovation can be a lot more sustainable. How do we start to really rethink how we go about and what the cost is really for me, it's, it's what's the price that we're paying to be on top or to be the best or to put out the most innovation or to invest as much as we can in creativity. So let's start to rethink that. And, and I love that you mentioned that. That's, that's a really interesting piece of information. I'm curious as to how you come up with these reframings of problems, because there's there's lots of different perspectives you could get on an issue faced by a company. So some are undoubtedly more productive than others. Is that is that primarily your job? Do you have a framework for doing that? Well, walk me through that process. Oh, so it, it can be anything. And you're so right. There's so many different ways to approach it. But I think the first one, and I always say awareness is key with everything. So that's where I start. When I work with clients, it's always around 
how can I understand your context? How do I understand the frameworks that you're currently working with? Um, whether you have, whether change or uh, innovation is just for the select few, maybe you've got a, your R&D team in the corner and they're the only people that work on innovation and, and understanding what some of the cogs within the wheel are in, in that sense. So that's definitely where we start understanding the systems, having the conversations with people, and then even sitting in on some strategic um, conversations that are happening within the organization right at the beginning of uh, any kind of intervention, especially if it's something that's consulting based that I would be doing with the particular kinds. And thereafter, we start to have the conversation around what I've noted and to almost uh, echo what I've heard. So is this is is it so that this and this and this is how you would go about it? If you were faced with this particular case study, how would you go about it? And then starting to suggest different ways. And this is all like we spoke in the beginning, it's all based on a coaching type of approach. So it's not necessarily, hey, I, I come in as an expert, I know what you need to do, boom, 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 try this, try that. But it's, have you thought about this? Can we start to look into this? Do you have access to resources that would allow you to possibly try that? Do you know any, are you connected with any organizations that may be able to support you in this way? And starting the probing. So the probing would be very question-based and understanding their perspective. And then some of the things that justify why they, they, they perform in that way. Because I think, especially being someone in an African context, I think what happens a lot of the time is that there is a lot of this comparison and I see it all of the time with organizations against each other, is that we will compare our innovation outputs against the, that of another. And then, although a healthy competition is one of those things that I do in a sense believe in, but I do believe that it's really important to understand what are the contextual factors that are really playing a role around what we're doing. Um, is it because we have an organizational culture that says we need to be doing things in this way? Is it because of what we've got in terms of resources available to us that limits how we approach that? So I think that that definitely is always a starting point to me. And my, my approach is always a coaching approach um, to this organizational intervention or facilitation. So that by itself is a really interesting skill, being able to figure out how people are approaching problems, like the frameworks within which they're operating. Because I think for most people, most of the time, it's very implicit. Like mo most people don't reflect all that much on the framework they're bringing to the problems they're facing. So I actually have two questions about that. One, how do you, how do you figure that part out? I mean, conversations obviously, but it, it, is there a process for that? Do, do you have like a taxonomy of different frameworks people tend to take towards certain kinds of problems? And then it, once we're done with that, I'd like to ask if there are common errors that like, do you, do you see the same errors cropping up in lots of different contexts? Yes, that's a very good question. Absolutely. To answer your very first one. Yes, that is the case. So I do work with, and I think what I, what I use quite a lot that I find helps me guys is, is case studies. And I think what I always do when I work with an organization, it's always, okay, so I see something very similar with a case study that I might have read on maybe, uh, not to name drop, but so-and-so bank in 2012. They tried a, a particular case at the time that is quite similar to what you've done. And let's have a look at what they put into practice. Maybe even if it's a client that I've worked with in a successful project that I've had in the past, then we'll sort of call that in. And I think one of the things that also served me in tapping into a network of really great case studies around um, sort of identifying where my clients are and, and what their case specific cases or any precedent um, that's, that's happened or has been set are those uh, networks that I've built around myself where we can have conversations around 
what we've noticed in the change work that we're doing uh, the, and, and the unlearning, I think, is not one that, that most people will identify with. So it's, it's the change management type of conversation that we're having reaching out to other uh, change practitioners and understanding what the other case studies are that we can then use to almost scaffold around this particular context. What is it that's happening here comparing to what that case was there? And then moving from there. And I think a lot of the time it isn't just one and the other, but it might be one and then certain parts of it might be calling a lot of other different parts around other um, practices or other cases that, that I've noticed or that others have worked with in the past as well. And then you sort of call in those different aspects of it and use that to almost uh, help the organization, that mirror back process I was talking about earlier, where you go, okay, this is what I've put together. It looks like because of case one, two, three, three and four that you've showed me, it looks like when you are faced with such and such, this is how you generally go about it. Because you did that with this guy and this guy and this guy. And then you, you know, when you, you get that consistent iterative conversation going, it's a very conversation based. And when I tell people that um, facilitating and being client facing is only about 20% of the work that I do, I get huge shocks because I think the back end is really all of that looking into and managing those relationships and having the, the deeper conversations behind that as well. Please remind me of your last question because it's gone right out of my mind. No, no, no. What, what, are, what are some common errors that you see crop up? So you've worked with lots of different companies, helping them reframe their problems and, and unlearn whatever's gotten them into the mess that they're in now. So are, are there just, a, is there a consistent theme across these different companies? Like, like what's a mistake people consistently make in, in framing the solutions to the problems they're facing? Oh, that's a very good question. I think they, they definitely are, but I'm going to just outline two of them specifically for me that always, always, always jump out. And this is if we're talking about a larger organization or we're talking about a um, smaller uh, SME or we're talking about a startup. And the very first one is divorcing culture from the conversation of change or from the conversation of strategic change. Because what happens a lot of the time is we'll get organizations that come to me and go, okay, we want to make some kind of dramatic shift and we just need someone to sort of oversee that entire process. Just help us with one, two, and three as part of the strategy. And when I bring up the conversation of culture, we get I get a pushback because everyone's going, no, but why do we have to talk culture if you're just helping us integrate a new system or you're helping us um, integrate our team into a leadership shift? But I think that unless we understand that helping people change is all about culture, it's all about shifting some perspective or some parts of the organizational culture, then we'll always just keep missing it. Mm -hmm. We'll always sort of keep missing the mark down the line. So that's definitely the first thing for me. And then the other one is quite closely related to that. It's the conversation around leadership. Bless all of the leaders I've worked with. They know I'm a huge fan. But I think one of the biggest things for me is that leaders a lot of the time think that they can change people. And one of the things I always say is that leaders don't change their people. They support their people while their people change themselves. And so the biggest conversation is understanding how human behavior works and helping leaders to be equipped with some of the key research around neuroscience and that people don't change because you've told them to. I mean, look at the Tide Pods example. Uh, people started eating Tide Pods possibly <laughs> even more after Procter & Gamble put out a statement. 
Because when you tell people what not to do, their sense of autonomy is threatened. And they're going, oh my goodness, why are they telling me not to do that? Let me jump in, let me do it. And so I think that leaders really need to be equipped with how do people change? And what is the best way that I can support them and not say, okay, everyone off to point A, but how can I sort of link that or, or facilitate it in the way that they go, oh my goodness, I want to change or I've chosen that change for myself. And so I'll back. I'll back it and almost support it on my own. So those are the two that I'll mention that quite closely related, but overall, and, and they're not so strategic and, and number-based, but I think that those two, if anyone is listening, really wants to get this right, if they look into those two, it will be very helpful. So lots of the people that we uh, talk to, some of them are in similar positions like you are, um, where you're consulting and working with large corporations. How has your business model changed during COVID? And, and then moving forward, how will you be doing things different after COVID? I love that question, Tom. I love that question. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I'm the only one, but um, in March 2020, my entire diary cleared out. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm doomed. Will I ever make another penny? Um, am I going to starve? <laughs> but fortunately, that wasn't the case. And, and I think we've been challenged so much in whatever work you do, but more especially with my work, that was very client-facing, very much in person. I love to engage face-to-face, -face, even though I'm an introvert. But with my work, I find it a lot more effective to engage face-to-face -face with my clients and have those conversations and gain that trust. Because I think with the work that I do, when clients know me and they've had an opportunity to see my face, see the lines on my face and hear my voice live, then it just creates that sense of, I know I can trust her. I know I can trust my business with her because that's the bigger conversation. And now I, I don't get a chance to, to do that. I think the last time I saw a client face-to-face -face was last year. This entire year, everything has just been on the other side of the screen. So one of the biggest ways I've had to change my business model is to give my clients an option where that works for them, an option where they can make the most of conversations with me. So I'll give you an example. This would be something like, if you really, really want me in person, rather I'll do a recorded presentation for you or a recorded almost introductory session with you, like a workshop or something, uh, or, or just a presentation, a keynote online. You can watch it at your own time. But if I come in person, let that be strictly for Q&A. Let that strictly be just for us to engage and get sort of the meat conversation part of it. So I think it's, it's really starting to reposition my offering so that I get the most out of them and my client still gets the most out of them. And then expanding what I, I have to offer as well. I think now because my, my time is a lot more mine. I think I can say that I'm not spending time um, traveling to the airport. I'm not spending time running around choosing what to wear on the bottom half of myself. I get to save <laughs> a lot of that time and I get to sort of use it to develop new products and set up this digital first, physical later. And that's what I've been saying to my clients. And that's what I've been doing. Think digital first. What can you offer your clients digitally? What can you do a digital first, whether it's a presentation, it's a facilitation, it's a session, and then physical later. Let physical be the option that people who really, really, really um, find value in that stretch into that. But I think 
that definitely is it. It's the opening up a range of offerings to my clients and then shifting that so that everything is a lot more well positioned for clients that um, that want to engage virtually and in a hybrid type of context where it's both in person and in virtual. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're like a lot of people that you're questioning whether or not you want to deal with airports again. Uh, because when you when you think back, all that time you spent at airports just getting pushed around and and everything that um, and if you could do without that, wow, that's that's worth a lot. But but you're you're exactly right. You're missing the feedback loop of of seeing people in person, um, and that's that's one of the things I miss for certain. Um, well. Yeah, so so you've talked a little bit about some of the the permanent changes you probably make moving forward. Uh, do you you see that still being in place five or ten years from now? No, to be very honest, I don't. I'm seeing my my work being a lot more hybrid going forward. At the moment, it's it's oh goodness to be very honest with you, eighty percent virtual, and then about twenty percent is in person. Um, facilitation, in-person conversations with clients. But going forward, I definitely see a lot more um, of a mix. And this is quite unfortunate because, um, I mean, I'm, I love to, to travel. And so this is one of the things that I was quite bummed about um, last year. And knowing that soon enough, I will get to do that but it won't be as much of a necessity to clients because nowadays no client is going to fly you over uh, to Japan for, for argument's sake for an hour's long keynote. Before, they, they could very easily do that, but nowadays they won't. And I don't expect them to think that they have to do that in the next five years because I know it wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. And so I think I don't expect the same amount of uh, in-person engagement in the next five years, to be very honest, but I do expect a lot more coming out, a lot more flying, and but a lot more caution. So it's still some masks here and there, um, and a little bit more trouble getting through certain borders. But I think, yeah, definitely a lot more travel. Fantastic. I, I actually wanted to follow up on something you said earlier about the two common errors that, that companies tend to make, and that's ignoring culture and leaders thinking that there's a more direct path to changing people in the company than there tends to be. And those are two things that are notoriously difficult to get to stick. So I mean, you'll, these companies will hire outside consultants for outrageous fees, and they'll come in and they'll try to make all these changes. But engineering a culture is a very difficult thing to do. So how much success have you had permanently changing the way these companies operate and what is involved in getting it to stick? Cool. There's a lot of different things that are involved in getting it stick. I work also as a neuro coach. And so that's where I bring in that neuroscience of change. And I, to be very honest with you, it's, it takes a very long time. And I often debunk this idea of habits are formed in 21 days because it's, it's all based on a certain very niched type of research. And it, it's now be, become so disseminated that people don't know where the line is. And this idea that we can create any kind of change in such a short space of time is very misleading. And that's why if I go into an organization, I do want to be in there for a lot longer but to be very honest with you, a lot of organizations will go, okay, we just want you for the month. Can we just have maybe four or so sessions spread out during the month? And I often advise against it, but I 
think that it hasn't quite come across that we need a lot more of this intervention that's a lot more long-term. And that's where I see the results. It's with the organizations that are willing to drag it out. If we're talking six or so months intervention where we're consistently having conversations with the leadership, we're tracking, we're monitoring the data, we're having conversations with people on the ground, I'm coming into the warehouse, I'm looking around, we're having conversations. That's when you can start to almost track the data. And one organization... Um, it's a French organization that I've worked with. Um, they do some fantastic work. And I've worked with their um, IT team and their regional office, so their Africa uh, region team. And then more specifically now, I'm working with their Africa team. And because I've worked with them over time, the results that they've been able to accomplish in, in the space of a year that I've worked with them is absolutely profound. One of the things that the leader said to me is that the IT department in this organization was seen as the part of the organization that fixes computer and that logs the tickets. And they wanted to move from that particular frame into being the parts of the organization that drives innovation, that drives digital conversations. And that's what they now do. So all narratives that have to do with digital conversations, um, they're running really great hackathons in the organization, conversations around how do we almost accelerate our adoption of the digital parts of our organization? How do we digitize our products? How do we turn into a platform business? And they've been able to spearhead those things. And now the organization has implemented some fantastic projects in the last year as a result of just making that shift, but also having it as a long-term conversation, not as come in and get us excited for one hour about change, and then we don't see you again, but more come in, walk us through, hold our hand, not hold our hand as in you become dependent on me, right. but hold our hand as in give us a little bit of a boost to let us know where we should be keeping our eyes, what conversations we should be having, and just help help nudge us, help, self, help us to self-disrupt which I think is another way that I express unlearning. That's fantastic. So there, there's no way we're not going to get into the neuroscience of learning and habit formation and creativity. So, so let's just, let's just jump off. Why don't you start wherever you want to start? <laughs> cool. No problem. All right. So I think I always like to start with the analogy of a forest. And I always say that literally what learning is in the brain is it's just this, um, this, this uh, process of you and I creating new, um, almost new ideas or new defaults and then replacing them with others. Um, I'm just thinking about something you once said to me, Thomas, that I'm finding quite interesting, but I'll bring it in just now. If we think about this idea of a forest, a forest is full of thick trees and you and I want to get from point A to point B. Point A being outside the forest, point B being somewhere inside in the thick of the forest. If you want to travel from that point into point B, you're going to have to get through that thick forest of trees. The first few times you do it, it's going to be very tricky for you because you've got those trees in the way, right? But the more you travel that path back and forth, the easier it becomes because that path almost gets graveled out or even eventually tarred out as well. And that for me is one of the best ways to explain learning and change in the brain. Because those, or that path, if you can think of it as a neural pathway within the brain. And we know that often, or the more often or consistently that you travel that path or fire that thought uh, to use that language, the more consistently it becomes the default. So now in the brain, if you want to do something, your brain says, I want to get to point B. Instantly, it will use that path because that's the path you've almost fired um, often enough. And, you know, Hebb's law says cells that fire together 
hardwired together. And the more consistency we apply to that way of thinking, that pattern of thought, the more it becomes consistent. And that's really why um, this is an almost two-sided approach here, is that that's, really, that's a really great part about learning and almost unlearning as well, is that the brain does have the capacity to unlearn. If you can form a new neural pathway, or you can solidify one, or you can even prune one that used to be quite dominant, then you can unlearn. But the other side of it, and neuroplasticity is good for these, um, this particular reason, the other side of it is that when it is hard formed, Unfortunately, it means that you do have to put in the work of creating a new pathway. And another example is if you think about how sometimes you've got a nice tarred road and then right on the side on the grass, you'll see people have created a little shortcut there because that's the default. It means, oh my goodness, I don't want to have to go um, through the, the tarred road, but I want to just create a tiny path there. And that literally is what happens with the brain. The more you travel that path, the more it becomes a default. And that's why I always say that's the bright side. We can unlearn, we can create new defaults. It doesn't mean that the old way of thinking dies because everything exists in the brain. And when you call it in, um, when it's triggered, it has a chance of coming back. That's why we need to keep our eyes open. But that just in a nutshell is how, um, how the learning sort of happens and why it's important for organizations, especially leaders to understand how the brain learns before they can go, okay, let's get everyone to change. Let's get everyone to sort of shift the way they do things. So you you work with companies all over the world, and um, and now do you do you work primarily with products companies, or do you work also work with B two B companies? Um, and what uh, what parts of the world do you um, do you find your message to be um, best received? I should ask. Cool. That's a good question. Thank you, Thomas. So I work with a range of different organizations, but more service-centered organizations. So we're looking at um, organizations like your, your banks. We're talking people that do a lot more um, of the back-end stuff, your, your IT um, back-end type of organizations. And here and there, you know, I might work with um, Volkswagen, which is one of my clients, and just a few others. So it really does range. But what I find works really well is working on the ground. A lot of people who do what I do like to work with leaders, but I like to work with everyone, especially the people on the ground that have to end up making those behavior changes happen. And I find that that's where, that's where things get effective. Because if I'm having a conversation with your leaders, but I'm not having a conversation with you, I find that there is a lot of the time a disconnect because I'm not sure how you're going to almost translate that information or teach that through or filter it down in that particular way. And when it comes to um, where in the world, I would say some of this is well received or well practiced. I don't have anything in particular. Hey, I, I do find that uh, different audiences will receive will receive what I do differently, and different organizations will receive it differently. I do find that the conversation is is very context driven. Like when I'm working with a, a US client, I won't um, use some of the, the really great case studies that I may use with some of my clients here in South Africa. So I think it's just being very context specific and, and getting a good approach that works specifically with that organization under their context and with their history. So we've talked a lot about innovation and encouraging it in different companies. So do you have a pithy overview of what innovation is? <laughs> I love that question. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> wow. I think the, this is, 
the possibilities are really limitless. Innovation can be anything. And I don't believe in the general idea that innovation is necessarily something brand new that no one on the planet has heard about or seen. I think innovation is if you can just do one little thing that makes it faster, better, um, more convenient. It's just that tiny shift from what we've become used to. And that's why I love service innovation, because for me, it really excites me around how we've just made that tiny little uh, tweak to something that we've seen in one way for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, we start to almost come awake to the possibilities. So it's it could be anything. Let me give you an example. If we're talking about a product um, that's always come maybe in a certain and this is going to sound a little bit, um, <laughs> it's going to sound a bit generic. But if we're talking about a product that's come in in a certain packaging for a very long time, and then a team starts to have a conversation about packaging that could be a lot more user-friendly, packaging that could be a lot more friendly to the environment, and, and they make a certain change to it. That, for me, is considered innovation because we've had a conversation around how to make a product or a service just a little bit better for the user. And that's what I'll say. I'm not too fussy around my definition of innovation. <laughs> do you ever find that people are too innovation obsessed? So how do, how do you balance the need to change the way you're doing things with the consideration that if it's not broke, you shouldn't fix it? I love that. Yes, I do. I find that we're so innovation obsessed that it, it almost drives us crazy. Mm. And we have what's now being called innovation fatigue that because we're consistently being driven to innovate, to change, to come up with something new, it feels like, okay, you know, what do we need to do now? This might be a little bit too much. So I do think there is definitely that. And a lot of leaders are starting to, to understand that that is something that our organizations are, are, are feeling, our people are feeling. But I think it comes with that definition of innovation because depending on how you define innovation, you're going to push your team differently for the output. And this is what I find um, with many organizations. If they introduce a new uh, fragrance to a product, they'll list it under innovation in their KPIs. If they do one little tiny thing, that also speaks to the definition that the organization will hold around innovation. So I think that that definitely for me is would be my answer with, um, with regards to that, that first question that you asked. I know there was a second one. Please refresh my memory. Was there a second one? Yeah, well, can you, can you actually create an optimal level of innovation then? I mean, that's that's kind of what you're trying to achieve, right? Yes, it would be what you're trying to achieve. And I think the optimal level of innovation could be very much defined by you. And that would also be driven by how much you input into your innovation, what the, the measures that you have, what are some of the sort of the, the metrics that you're putting behind that. How would you know if, you know, you've got that, uh, those optimal levels that, that are being, um, that are being achieved. And I think it can come at different levels. So if we're looking at maybe, let's say, for example, um, we're looking at design specific innovation, we're looking at our products, we're looking at um, maybe how we innovate the process through which we, we produce. Then I think if we're looking at how we apply it to those different parts of the organization, different parts of our offering, different parts of the product or the system or the supply chain, then if we tick those boxes, then that's when we know we're really optimizing um, as much uh, of the outputs as we could possibly have. But I think that's a, that's a very good question. 
So you've you've mentioned that you tend to approach helping companies reframe their problems through case studies, but you've also said that you track a lot of data. And so there is sort of an interesting tension between the case study approach and a data-driven approach. And I think today, most of us are obsessed with big data. I'm actually a data scientist myself, so I'd, I'd work with data all day. So how do those two things relate to each other? Do you think one is better in certain circumstances than the other? Do you think that you know you could be collecting more data? Just riff on that a little bit. Cool. I don't actually think there's a difference, hey? And I, I don't know. I think, and this is the thing. I mean, everyone's uh, perspective is different around this, but I don't think there's actually a difference because what I find, especially around the data that I will make use of or some of the case studies that I'll make use of, it's all literally intertwined into each other. So all of the data, the, the big data that's made use of in any given scenario is made up of case studies around organizations that have practiced, learned things, gotten things wrong, gotten things right, and then have published that information or have tracked those numbers and documented them. And so that then comes together to make up some of the data that we would um, consider, that we would put into, into consideration as we go through the case. And I think, so that's why in my perspective, I don't know, maybe I might be missing something here, but in my perspective, I, I wouldn't divorce the two. And I find that the one definitely does inform the other or the two are quite closely intertwined. And so that's why I would sort of touch on both. Oh, very nice. Um, and, and a lot of what we've discussed is changing the, the culture of a, a, of a company. How does new technology impact that? I mean, have you seen company cultures change as we, we have more tools for collaborating online or over the internet? Do you, do you see that there are new problems that are emerging from that? Or are the issues kind of perennial, like leaders throughout the ages kind of have the same problems to solve? Well, today's solutions are tomorrow's problems, That's right? right. <laughs> <laughs> I think tech definitely does impact culture in ways that we sometimes don't even see. And I'm going to use um, five key ingredients that our team at Tomorrow Today has been working with quite extensively at the moment. Um, belonging, autonomy, mastery, and, and purpose, um, and generosity. So the way that tech has really been impacting, and I'll just touch on uh, maybe just three of those to give you a really good example. The first one is a sense of belonging. If you look at the way a lot of teams are engaging at the moment, um, especially based on obviously the pandemic, which is driving a lot of what we're seeing in terms of how organizations are creating these hybrid work um, sort of systems or these hybrid work environments. What we're seeing is that, and this is what a lot of leaders didn't perceive or didn't see coming. What we're seeing is that Hybrid working environments are actually creating an in-crowd and an out-crowd with a lot of organizations. And when I come into teams to do some facilitation, you can almost tell that there is the sense of we're the office guys and we're the virtual guys. <laughs> and so that for me is just how it's changed cultures. Because if we don't feel like we belong in an organization anymore, and it's as a result of maybe some of the tech that's come in that's been introduced to sort of help us manage or um, facilitate our online working and our new working environments. The next one would be a sense of autonomy. And this is one we sort of um, maybe touched on, but not in so many words, is that a lot of organizations and team members are now starting to find that their sense of autonomy is being questioned. They're not so sure that they're really making their own decisions anymore. And a lot of the time it might be because of tech. We've read so many uh, case studies around organizations that literally put cameras in people's homes to make sure that those individuals are engaging in some form of work. 
during the times or during the hours in which they've been allotted to do some form of work. And so that's the other thing. It's becoming a conversation that's intrusive, but also individuals don't feel like they have their time to themselves. One organization that I've closely been tracking does this hands off my lunch break type of thing, where if you are trying to input a meeting into the time that they've said is their lunch break, they can say no. Whether you're the CEO, the CFO, or his friend, they can say, no, I don't want to meet with you because that hour is my lunch break. And so that's the very big one around autonomy. And I think if I'll mention the last one that's also quite important is our sense of mastery, is that tech Ah, oh, goodness, blessed soul has really, really started to make us question our sense of mastery. And that's whether we feel we are masterful or we feel like we're not. I don't want to turn my camera on if I feel like I don't quite know where all the buttons are. And if my organization is not investing in helping to help me master this tech, then I'm in an even worse position because then I don't feel like I can master it or I can build a sense of mastery around it. So I think definitely it's it's not even a question of, of if, it's definitely a, a, a given, it's, it's a guaranteed one that tech is definitely affecting the culture of organizations. And unless we start to rethink this idea of taking what we did in person and dumping it into the virtual world, but going, how do we recreate rituals, routines, and rhythms that work in a hybrid world, rather than taking funky hat Mondays that we used to do in the office and dumping it online. Now we're all sitting with funky hats with our cameras on, even though we know it doesn't work in the virtual context. How do we how do we recreate those rituals? And I think that's the conversation to build that belonging, that mastery and that autonomy that I spoke about to help. Yeah, that's the culture. So what so what's your answer to that question? Like, how is it that we that we build new digital native rituals that foster cohesiveness and autonomy and, and all of the virtues you discussed? Cool. I think we start with the conversations. How can people start to feel like they belong? And how can individuals start to feel a sense of mastery and a sense of generosity and a sense of purpose in the virtual world? I'll give you one tiny example. So the example I gave you around hands off my lunch, that's one thing that you can do in, in a digital world where you sort of build that sense of autonomy. Another example with uh, creating those new rituals is having um, icebreakers. When we jump onto our calls right at the beginning, we often do, we, you know, we'll do these really boring icebreakers that people don't actually want to engage in, but it's starting to think about what are the icebreakers that help us not only to get to know each other, but to engage even further. Things like lunch roulettes. One of my clients does a lunch roulette where every now and again, you'll sit face-to-face uh, -face and have lunch with someone from the team who may be in the office and who may even be virtual, but you have lunch together. That's all based on this idea that when we eat or we share a meal together, it creates that deep sense of belonging. And we don't have to be part of the in crowd or the out crowd, but we're always together. And another one, last one that I'll share that I think is, is absolutely brilliant. We used to do this in my school when I was a primary school teacher, is we used to have this wall where we pasted these sticky notes showing appreciation. And this one links to generosity, showing appreciation for someone who's done something during the day, during the week. If someone lends me their pen, I'll write a little sticky and go, oh my goodness, you were so generous that time. And I stick it up. And in the virtual world, we can do something. We've got so many great, um, whether you're thinking about Google Jamboard, Slido, so many great um, apps and uh, software that will help us to redo that, but do it in the way that everyone, whether physical 
and virtual can interact with it and it can help us to rebuild. So I think it's, it's that big question. And that's really why those five sort of pillars exist is that as we start to design those rituals, how do we make sure we have those five things and then starting the conversation with our team members? Yeah, when you, when you talked about hands-off lunch, um, <clears throat> that that brought up lots of different ideas for me because, I mean, during COVID, we, we our days have become kind of a blur. We just tend to work through everything. Um, we go get lunch and we eat while we're working and we, um, we take breaks while we're working. We're calling family and friends in between other business calls. I mean, it's all become this giant blur. And um, is, is that going to somehow get sorted out after COVID? And do you run into that a lot in culture that uh, the, this, the, the work that you're doing where you have to help companies uh, rethink what their work routine should be after, uh, after going through a COVID experience like this? Well, that's a good question. Thanks, Thomas. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon, to be honest, and sadly, because I don't think enough of us have started to have the culture conversation around that and not enough employees are speaking up about it and if they are they're not being heard and so i don't think it's going away anytime soon because even as we reintegrate back into our hybrid work environments and we jump into the office on some days and online on others there is still that blur and work has become home and home has become work and it's all just together so and on all honesty and in what i've seen i don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon and I think it's really important that leaders start to have these conversations with their people around restructuring, because I mean, you look at the data around how so many of our individuals in, in organizations are getting burnt out. It's because of that uh, work merging into life and, and life merging into work, and we don't know what the two are. And what the biggest conversations are that I've been having at the moment is that the beauty of hybrid work is that it will allow us to not just mold our lives around our work, where work is central to who we are, because that's the way things have been for a very long time, in my opinion. If you think about it, where you, um, where you cut your hair or the clothes that you wear or the car that you drive, or even the person that you marry sometimes, the school that your children go to have all been informed by where you work and what work you do. But now we have the opportunity to flip that around where work is not the center of our being, but we can almost completely reimagine where life is the center or you are the center and then work just creeps into the little corners of your life where you can work from England if you choose to and you can be lying on the beach if you want to. And I think for me, that's a really exciting conversation that um, teams need to be introduced to is that the work from anywhere revolution is here. And it's all about whether or not we're ready for it and we can take our people there. So most of your work is with organizations and, and helping them fix their cultural problems or disrupt from the inside. But it occurs to me that at least some of these techniques would work for individuals as well who want to be more productive or more innovative in their own lives. So which, which pieces of advice that you normally give to companies would also serve individuals who want to apply them? Well, thank you very much. That's a very good question. Yes, absolutely. But my uh, more specific uh, work with or with individuals is um, individuals that are trying to make career moves. But I will give something that's a little bit more general. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I always give is the two C's. 
first one is compassion. Second one is challenge. Start with compassion. Be compassionate towards yourself. Love all over yourself about the times when you don't show up as your best self, especially when it comes to change and understand that it's going to be really, really tricky. I always tell people to the face, it's hard. I'm not going to tell you 21 days. I'm going to tell you that it's hard. But then the second thing, this challenge that I'm talking about, and this is where the little pieces of, of nuggets are that I'm going to give you. With challenge, um, that's very much the key to how much we grow, how much we expand, and how much we explore. What you really want to do is switch. And switch, um, this is the piece of advice that I'll give you, could be anything. So challenge yourself or get your mind to be as adaptable as it can be. So challenge your adaptive capacity by switching. And by switch, I mean every now and again when you can play around, change the hand that you write with. Swap the hand that you brush your teeth with. And what that does is it helps you to almost get used to this adaptive capacity. Because I always say being a futurist or being someone who helps people understand the future of work is not about telling them what's around the corner, but it's about getting them ready for whatever it is that is around the corner so that when they do get around there, they can show up for it. So I think the bigger conversation is ask yourself, what are the different ways I can work on myself? That might mean future skills. Have a look at some of the future skills you need. Split them up. Softer skills. I'm very much against the word soft skills, but that's another conversation for another day. Split them up. Soft skills, hard skills. What are some of the skills I can look into? And then switch over. What are some of the smaller things that I can start to work on in my daily life to build my own adaptive capacity? Because the more adaptive you can be as an individual, it better positions you for the changes in your work, but also for the changes in your life that are going to impact your family, impact you, impact your children. So building adaptive capacity could really be anything as an individual. We're talking reading books that are not within your preferred genre. Let's say, for example, reading some fiction every now and again, if you're not so much of a fiction reader, speaking to people that don't act as an echo chamber for you, that don't echo everything you say. Start conversations with those people. Go to places you don't often go to. Expose yourself to being challenged. Challenge, challenge, challenge. Um, with almost an equivalent dose of compassion, like I mentioned in the beginning. But that for me is absolutely key. Crossing your arms the other way. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, in preparation for the interview, I, I watched some of your TED Talks and things on YouTube. And yeah, that, that stuck with me. You, you cross your arms one way, cross them the other way. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But if you just keep going back and forth, it gets easier over time. And it seems like most of that, most of that advice is just get out of your comfort zone so that you, I guess you kind of expand the comfort zone and whatever, you know, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune come down the, the way for you, you'll be prepared to handle them. Very well said. I really like that. Um, a lot of a lot of what I would talk about now is is how a AI is going to be impacting future jobs, and um, I always like to think in terms of having an AI uh, coach bot or an AI teacher bot that we're interacting with with the verbal communication, and having a conversational interface makes it easy so that you don't need to learn what each of the words on some drop-down menu means, but you can just talk back and forth to this coach. Um, d would you see a time where um, an AI bot is able to coach people in how to um, rethink their organization? And, um, and so like you might be the bot master, and so you're in charge of like a thousand bots that are uh, integrated into different companies around the the world. Um, I I always 
think in terms of the people part don't, doesn't go away. It just gives us more capability. So, like, if you were in charge of a thousand of these bots, um, how much good or how much damage could you do? And <laughs> <laughs> that's an exciting thought. <laughs> I think there's definitely capacity for that. I'm thinking about Watson. It's just all about how much data we feed it. And the great thing that I like about our approach now to AI is that it's it's collaborative in the sense that um, all of our incapacities, especially as professionals around not being able to keep up with the latest research, we can't learn fast enough to serve our clients the best way we can. But if we were to have, um, like you said, Thomas, you know, that, that bot, that teacher bot or that coach bot that is there with the latest amount of, of um, research and data that's been fed into it, it can draw all of these things in, in a much better way than we could and make sense of it in, in, in that way. So I think that there's definitely room for that. I don't doubt it. Um, and I think that it really is about how much we're willing to play around with that idea and how much we're willing to bring those things in. So as soon as you have a bot please do let me know where you bought her or him and then I'll make sure I, I get myself one of those. Two. Well, if, if you're interested in that, you should check out episode 23. We interviewed um, the founders of the company Ought, and they are building functionality on top of GPT-3. So that's the most advanced language model in existence right now. And it does things like summarize research reports or, you know, brainstorm plausible lists of of podcast guests. If you give it 10, it'll give you 10 more uh, people that, that plausibly could, could work with it. And, and the things they're doing with it are just incredible. They're generating flashcards from it, getting it to ask you questions about things you read to test your comprehension. And so I, I would advise checking that out if that's a direction you want to explore. Oh, definitely. Fantastic. I think for me that it, it just begs that question of, are we, is the trade-off enough? But I think this, this, there's a conversation we can have on la offline, but is the trade-off enough? What are we really trading off here? If we're giving, and I'm thinking now back to the, the primary school classroom, if we're trading off that teacher, that coach uh, relationship for, uh, for an AI or for a bot in the sense, you know, what's the, what's the trade-off there? Is it worth it? Are we creating something? Are we creating a bigger monster on the back end? But anyway, yeah, those are great questions because um, uh, it can go every way. Uh, I mean, I, I, I keep thinking back to your comment about uh, today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. And, yeah, I think um, when, you, when you look at AI, you're constantly asking the question, what can possibly go wrong here? And <laughs> well, with all technologies, really. Yeah, pretty much all technologies. Yeah. But AI seems to have um, squarely dark characteristics that we can't really define and it's um well because it's intelligent right and it, it has the, yeah. the potential to engage in goal-directed behavior and also might converge on on drives that are not compatible with what we would want or what human civilization needs yeah and then we we worry about them becoming sneaky yeah. and we yeah. don't want sneaky ai right that, no. that's just bad all around <laughs> very transparent and honest ai is what we want um well, we are we are coming up on the hour. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Yeah. What what gives you hope? <laughs> He's stealing my question. I used to ask that all the time. So <laughs> we would have these guests that would just paint the bleakest pictures about the future of AI or quantum computing or the economy or something. And I would say, all right, well, tell us a thing that makes you hopeful. So I guess we can end on that note. Tell us a thing that makes you hopeful, Zanelli, when you're done laughing from oh, our hilariousness. So <laughs> thank you so much. This has been amazing. 
Wow, something that gives me hope. I think what gives me hope is what makes us human. Um, and there's so many doom and gloom pictures that have been painted. You're so right. And there is so much that could go wrong. And that's the thing. But there's also so much that could go right. And that for me is what gives me hope, is the capacity that human beings have for compassion, for thinking intelligently, for reason. And I think that over and above our, you know, cold, hard machine counterparts, that's what we'll always have the upper hand on. And if we can latch onto that, then, I mean, it sounds cheesy and it sounds cheesy even as I say it, but I, I think that if we can latch onto that, then that's something to be hopeful about. It's about humans being humans and caring. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's beautiful and inspiring and just a little cheesy. Thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me, guys. All right. This is great. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Zanelle and Japa. If you did, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.